This week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. It's extremely violent, it's extremely loud, and it's been proven for years and years to be very effective and largely very, very safe. U.S. Navy Commander and former Landing Signal Officer Jack Curtis joins us to describe the equipment, policies, and procedures necessary to land a high-performance jet aircraft on an aircraft carrier in the daytime. Kick it. Welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. I am Vincent Aiello, your host, and if that introductory song and communications bumper sounded familiar, that's because it's from episodes 11 and 12, which began our current series on carrier operations. It continues here today in episode 13 with Jack Curtis, where we will talk day carrier landings and equipment part one. This episode is brought to you in part by our patron strike lead, Bill Horvath. If you want to see what Bill is doing, go over to patreon.com and search Fighter Pilot Podcast and take a look at the exclusive material you can gain access to if you decide to join Bill and the others. We have a goal set up on there. If we reach a certain amount, we will take this show and increase it from three times a month to four. So if you're interested in that, take a look, consider signing up helping us to not only offset the cost of producing this show, but again, giving you access to exclusive content. All right, we have a great interview coming up. And I want to let you know that we had a survey recently on Facebook where you, the listener, decided by a slight margin to continue the current status quo of keeping plenty of time for listener questions, but also taking our interviews, which are getting longer, and breaking them up like we did on episodes 11 and 12. So we're going to do that again today with Farva, and this will be part one on day carrier landings. Now, our listener segment today is coming from a Facebook Live session I did with Brian Sinclair of Sunshine. You remember him from episode one. He's the one who told us what it means to be a fighter pilot and how you become one. So what I did is took our Facebook live session and it is edited just a little bit for content and clarity plus some of the humor is lost when you only hear it and don't see it and I'm going to replay the highlights here for our listener question segment and then I'll come back in before we get to the interview all right so let's go to listener questions with sunshine and jello all right guys well we're going to get to the questions here and we're just going to free flow this and I'll just start by asking you the first question, then sure I might thing. add to it. And then if you want, you can ask me the second one. Ah, this is apropos for you, actually. Uh-huh. Okay. This is from Austin from Boise, Idaho. He says, I have a question regarding Navy test and evaluation squadrons, VX. Believe you, were, believe you were in one of those. I was, I was. Which one? VX 31. 31, okay. Dust in, out uh, of China Lake. China Lake, California, near Ridgecrest. Mm-hmm. What do these members do? How does one get into one of these squadrons and how does it benefit a pilot when they return to the fleet so let's take it from the beginning there what do these members do uh, austin great question firstly entrance criteria if you will the, the way you get into a vx squadron is going to be through test pilot school so there are two accepted 
pads, if you will. One's the U.S. Air Force Test Pilot School, of which I'm an alumnus, I guess, and then the Navy Test Pilot School. So that's how you get in. Now, once you get there, what you're doing is you are an airborne engineer. So during the, the school, they're going to teach you how to write effectively to communicate. You already know how to fly, ideally. That's come to you with uh, the three-plus years of fleet experience you had prior to the prior. test pilot mm -hmm. school. Yeah. But now they're going to hone your skills a little bit because, from my perspective, you had to capture data points that required tight tolerances on airspeed, altitude, angle of bank, and whatnot. So you spend a lot of time focusing on very precise, usually single ship flying, as in, hey, I, I need to maintain this heading plus or minus 2 degrees, this airspeed plus or minus 10 knots. And you have to be able to talk as things are going on because uh, there are guys, sometimes they, they actually videotape your cockpit and, you, and they see your displays and it's showed uh, via telemetry to the ground. Sometimes it's just an audio relay. So you actually have to talk to the engineers and help them to experience what you are airborne. Okay. And when you run into contingencies or when you run into emergencies actually or non-standard things in the cockpit, then you have to be able to convey exactly what's going on in the cockpit and then you have to basically run through your decision matrix with the engineers, which would be a guy on the ground, and then effectively and efficiently come up with a solution. So what are you doing, though, this test for? The aircraft itself or some weapons or software? Thank you. For China Lake, VX-31 and VX-9, what we do is weapons test. And, and then VX-23 is in Patuxent River, Maryland, and that's the aircraft division. So I specifically work with anti-surface weapons. Oh. So that would be uh, blowing up ships. How do we blow up ships right. and whatnot? So. Uh, I got to test some very new variants of weapons that actually had Wi-Fi on board. So we call that uh, Link 16, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we had, um, they're called, the, the family of weapons is called Net-Enabled Weapons. Mm. And I got to launch the first Tomahawk that actually was, uh, you have a target, you dump the, ta the target coordinates into the, the weapon, you release the weapon, and now because it's Wi-Fi enabled, you can actually update the target coordinates, or you can change it to a new target, provided the kinematics work out, so it can still get to the target. That is pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty fun. All right. So Austin wants to know, how do you get into one of these squadrons? I guess you talked about the requirement to have been a test pilot school graduate, but then do you just show up and say, hey, I'm here? Or does it, do they pick you, or is there a rush? Uh, no, there's no rush. So basically, uh, for VX-31 specifically, you have to be a test pilot graduate. Okay. And then from there, you're farmed out. It's going to be a detailer who's kind of the... Uh, the flesh peddler, if you will, of the Navy, and he's going to look at needs of the Navy and see where you need to go. That is a disturbing term. Sorry about don't that. Don't use that again. Okay, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't need to be a TPS graduate to go to VX-9. Correct. Do you for 23? Those guys do like a lot of the carrier suitability stuff? To my knowledge, they are TPS okay. grads. Yeah, right, because there, there's two flavors of tests, sorry. Yeah, there's no, developmental tests where you're looking to make sure that the platform adheres to the specifications or specs of the, the contract, if you will. And then OT, or operational test, is VX-9, and they're going to kind of apply the operational uh, aspect of it and look for suitability and effectiveness, if you will, of the weapon system. So they are the conduit between the people with the very big brains in the engineering and the people with the very big chests, if you will, out in the fleet. Yes. These guys are in the middle and kind of translating it to yep. everybody uh, out there. All right. And then how does it benefit a pilot uh, when you return to the fleet? Uh, so going back to the fleet, you have firsthand experience with a lot of emerging technologies. And those emerging technologies are going to reach initial operational capability, IOC, and they'll be introduced to the fleet, and you are going to be uh, heavily leaned upon in the, your carrier air group or your CAG, basically, to uh, be an on-site, I guess you'd call it, subject matter expert. Specifically, the, the, the Hornet or the Super Hornet, they're both electric jets, so they're runoff predominantly software, so they're very software-intensive, if you will. So one of the things we did is uh, with weapons integration is also the testing of the different software 
uh, configurations, if you will. And then we, as they went out to the fleet, we would brief the fleet on them, and some of the guys that finish up their tour at VX would go back into the fleet, and they would be the resident subject matter experts. Okay, so kind of the people that are out there, the missionaries almost, that are right there among the population and helping everybody get to know all this stuff. Absolutely. Plus, I have to think that if you're flying that precisely, some of the stuff you said at the beginning, you're just going to be coming out of the tour like that a better pilot, a better thinker, a more globally oriented person as far as the experiences that you just encountered. I would say, and also just, yeah, uh, absolutely uh, critical thinking skills, mm-hmm. I guess you could say get enhanced, but also your communication skills. Because talking in the fleet, it's a very high standard of person that is in a fighter attack squadron. But then introducing another subset of people, if you will, and those would be the engineers, making sure you can talk to them from their perspective so they understand. That is the key. That is the key. All right, uh, so I think that's it for that one. Why don't you take that next one? Yeah, Jello. So uh, this is from Bill in Australia. So okay. good day, mate. Bill asks, do you think the retirement of the F-14 was justified? Though you weren't a Tomcat driver, I'm sure you would have known a few. Were there many whom believe that it is purely political and not that age plus the Hornets being able to complete its roles were the reasons for the replacement? What are your thoughts on the matter? <laughs> I, I don't think it was political. I mean... Possibly was there a political side of some aspect of it, particularly the fact that they sped it up towards the end? Mm-hmm. Maybe. But I think we had a conversation about this early on, way back in like episode two or three about the A-10. And it comes down to the same thing. There comes a point in an aircraft's life where the cost to operate it is not justified by the benefit that it gives the fleet. So, and that's what we're seeing now with the F-18 Hornet is, especially it, it's incrementally faster or exponentially I should say faster as you get fewer of them because it becomes so much more expensive to operate the few that are there. So my personal opinion on that is that I think it had to do with there came a time where it just became too expensive to operate the F-14 and the capability to your point yes was somewhat able to be covered by the F-18 and there came a date where they said okay we're going to sundown it by here but when they got within a year or two of that they realized they could do it sooner and it was more cost effective to do it sooner so they did and i want to say that was about 2007. was it a great airplane sure was it very capable absolutely but i don't think there was any sort of agenda or conspiracy or anything else i think it just reached the end of its normal life and aircraft do that yeah what i heard it was a very objective business decision it was diminishing returns just like you had mentioned earlier all right, right over to you next. Let's see. This is from Justin. Justin doesn't tell us where he's from. He's got a couple parts question. I'll give you the first one. Okay. Uh, recently, the Air Force has been looking for ways to replace what the A-10 is capable of when it comes to CAS, or close air support. They have reportedly been looking into light attack aircraft, most of which are prop-driven. What are your thoughts on the possibility of new light attack aircraft augmenting U.S. air power? Uh, so light attack, I would also, props, yeah, that's a great idea. So for me, props are fantastic where the density is high, i.e. the altitude is low for basically propeller efficiency, if you so will. So aerodynamically speaking. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, aerodynamically speaking, mm-hmm. I think the uh, propeller is a fantastic solution, if you will, for low altitude, low speed combat. And in this case, for close air support, training your guns in on something, I could see like the A-10, you know, which is its operating envelope is... I believe its employment envelope, let's say that, is usually 300 knots and less. As opposed to the Hornets, when we're dropping bombs, we're at kind of 450 and above. So I would say the prop option is a fantastic uh, solution, if you will, for low altitude and low speed engagement. And also comes for new light attack aircraft, drones, baby. 
Yeah. It's sad. I know. Come I know. On. You're going to talk us right out of a job. I know. It's so sad. But if you think about all the limiting factors of what I call the soft pink body in the cockpit, whether it be <laughs> currency, whether it be rest, right. whether it be, well, we'll just say fatigue. We'll call it fatigue. Whether it be disorientation, a lot, even training, the two-year pipeline that you and I enjoyed for a million plus dollars. How about you just print a com uh, computer chip, basically, and keep producing those? So from a business perspective, I see it. But from a dare I say, uh, emotional standpoint, I think it's a terrible idea, yeah. right? Okay. But I would, I would say that autonomous uh, new light attack aircraft is, is definitely a threat for us pilots. What do you think, though, about the idea of, so for example, I've had questions on the show before about the flight deck looks more and more homogenous as Ooh, far as different versions. Well, it was Ten a question. Uh, no, it was a question. I had to use the guy's word because I couldn't come oh, up with that. Oh, that's not your own word. No, okay. but uh, anyway. So the carrier flight deck looks more and more like different variants of F-18. This would arguably be a step in the opposite direction. So now, if you take these aircraft into some foreign theater where it would be employed, if it's alongside F-15s and 16s, now it's a whole other set of propellers and engines and wheels and different parts. Is there a part of you that's concerned about having too many different required pieces and parts and aircraft in a supply system? I mean, it shouldn't matter, but let's face it, today, under austere budgets, it kind of does. Yeah, absolutely. Another great word, austere. And that's going to be uh, going back to your idea of interoperability, right? If, if you can change a part on this plane and put it on that plane, and you basically have a common design, you're probably going to cut down both the initial costs and the long-term operating costs because your logistics, your, your footprint, your logistical footprint right. is probably more narrow or logistic chain, I guess you can say, in supportability. So while I understand the idea of having uh, multi-role things that are all built the same way but do different missions, that's great. Uh, the light attack, uh, let's think of aviation as a series of compromises, okay? So no jet is the fastest and also the most maneuverable True. and have the most sensors and whatnot. It's all a series of compromises. Well, we can have the Hornet has bigger landing gear, but it goes a little more slowly, let's say, or carries less and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So point being is you can only compromise so much, and you're going to have to still have, I believe, some smaller – this says light aircraft in his question, so I'm going to say True. smaller aircraft to fill some specific niches, I would call right. them. So. Okay, excellent. You want to take his second one there? Yeah, I'm sure this topic is nothing new to anyone in the world of aviation, but the Air Force is desperately in the red when it comes to pilots. Last figures I had seen were that the U.S. Air Force is about 3,000 pilots short, with roughly 2,500 being fighter pilots. In your opinion, what do you think is the root of the shortage, and what do you think can or needs to be done about it? So this question came up on a podcast I recorded with someone else recently on their show, and I was actually almost, frankly, surprised at my own answer, because I don't know about you, but, well, I guess you don't have a podcast, but a lot of times I just make stuff up as I'm answering it. Me too. Uh, uh, because it's all in there, but I don't know the order until it comes out. <laughs> but wh what I ended up realizing is several different things. Number one, the economy is doing well. And when the economy is doing well, there are more opportunities outside the military. And when there are more opportunities, specifically the airlines, but also other things like you may want to do, government contracts or whatever, that it's not such a risk to go do those. And when it is more risky, when the economy is doing poorly, people are more likely to stay with what they have, right? It's the old dishwater thing. You don't throw it out until you get the new. So I think right now, because the economy is doing well and the airlines are hiring, I mean, for heaven's sakes, they took me. So you know they must be <laughs> desperate, that you have more likely that there will be people that want to go out and go do that. The second is that you have an operational tempo these days that is very difficult to sustain. Now, I cannot speak for the Air Force. 
But uh, the Navy, a lot of the carriers these days, like when we were young, we would go out for six months and then we wouldn't go out again for another 18 months, roughly. And that would be our two-year rotation. Now, sometimes you go out for six up to 10 months. You're home for what, three or four months? Did you ever do one of these? I never yeah, had. I did a surge cruise. Oh, surge, as they call it. Okay, I never had to, so. Anyway, what they'll do is they'll go out for six or eight or 10 months. They'll come back for, what, three or four? And then they go out and do it again. Correct. And that gets old. Another thing is that, and I think this is always a tension to manage, but when you come in the military like we did, you're young, you're untied down, if you will, you are full of piss and vinegar, and you want to go fly things and blow stuff up and shoot things down. I mean, you do. Absolutely. You're, you're, you're in your 20s. That's what brings you in. And then the people keep you in. But then along comes a somebody who steals your heart, and then little ones that steal your heart even more. And you have daughters, so I can't imagine. Yeah. Uh, you know, my sons make <laughs> me want to go to work. I'm just kidding, boys. But, you know, there comes a time where suddenly that becomes more important. So I think that drives you. And then the last one, and this will be the most Confronta not confrontational. Um, what's the word I want? Can you dig in there and find uh, it? Start it talking <laughs> and we'll figure it out together. Um, it's that's not confrontational. It's 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 a little risque. I guess not risque, but it's anyway. It'll get there. I always hate I hate when I do this. This is why I don't do live stuff too much. I uh, like okay. the medium of being okay. able to record and go yeah. later, because then these stallings that I do to try to think of it while I'm rambling about nothing, I can come up with it. But it didn't happen. But anyway, the last thing I would say. Society is changing. I don't think that's news to anybody. I would say, if I may generalize, that most pilots who come to the military are relatively traditional and conservative. Now, that may be not always true, but I think it is. And I would argue that the way society is changing is away from that. And because the military reflects society, the military has to adapt to things and has had policy changes in the last several years. And in fact, there is required training on various things now right as I was leaving that was maybe something that certain people of a particular bent don't want to have to think about or learn or be trained on. And so if they are resistant to those types of changes, then it also makes it easy to say, you know, maybe it's just time to move on. Maybe if this is the way the military is going, I don't want to be a part of that anymore, and so I'm going to go do something else. So okay. it's just a dangerous thing to say, I think, on my, on my part. Let, but let me offer up, too, if you don't mind, of that whole of, hey, I've had enough kind of thing. The military retirement system, it's targeted basically 20 years, and mm -hmm. any time after that is gravy. And the, right. the folks that extend past 20, fantastic. But I really think that they designed it very well based on um, – what I would consider to be the, the, the job or mission satisfaction yeah. versus the amount of pain incurred, if you will. Right. And just like you said, you, you become a stakeholder in your kids growing up. And so for me, when the tide started to change from the piss and vinegar to the, the parental figure, if you will, it was coming back from the second cruise. And it was one of those where you go out six months, you're back for three months. But when you're back, you're actually up in Fallon. You're, you're away from your duty Sustaining. station. Exactly. And then we went back out for four. So they basically stretched out the whole evolution to be almost 13 months. During those 13 months, my girl went through, my firstborn, excuse me, was, was alive. She's born, obviously. So basically after 13 months, I came home, and for the first full day, she was afraid of me. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, you do the big flyover. The news is there. The wives are there. They understand. They have the flags. They have the cookies in the reception. And there's my one-and-a-half-year-old who's afraid of me. So it kind of, you know, kind of gets at you. And eventually those little things build up 
Because, yeah. I mean, when people thank you for your service and your sacrifice, that's an example of the sacrifice. So anyway, eventually that adds up. And 20 years is a fantastically designed, I would say, True. Uh, longevity or time frame. Aren't most girls afraid of you? Well, that's another story. <laughs> uh, we'll get to that later. <laughs> I finally thought of the word. It's not even that big of a word. Controversial. Oh. Duh. Yeah. All right. So anyway, you asked my opinion on why the Air Force is short. I think it's all those things. So, all right. Uh, let's see. This one's to you. How about Scott from Farmington, Massachusetts? Hello, Scott. I have a couple questions uh, mostly related to episode four on ejection seats. Okay. It hit Whoops. home because yeah. one of my friends flew with Basher. Mm. All right. Yeah, I know Basher. Yep. New. Many times you hear the term compartmentalization, speaking of big fancy words that start with a C, where there is a focus on the task at hand, blocking out all other distractions. Is this something that you train for? Is it looked for in the screening process, or is it just a common trait of fighter pilots? I would say it's a learned habit. I agree. Uh, I don't think they screen for it, but I think it's kind of Darwinism. They're going to put you in an environment that requires you, the kind of survival in the environment requires compartmentalization. True. So uh, when Basher perished, unfortunately, and I know you had Bloach on the show, I was on that carrier and I had just landed. So I didn't see the evolution go down. Okay. okay? But the thing is, there were still there were guys airborne that had to compartmentalize. They because they were monitoring a radio, they knew what was going on, and some of them saw the whole evolution go on. Right. So they had to uh, basically orbit until the ship could maneuver out of the way. But basically, those gentlemen had to compartmentalize. They just saw a potential death. I'm not sure they knew at the time, right? A fatality right. of someone that they've been cruising with for several months. Right. And you know what? That you have to push that aside because you still have to land on the pitching deck. That's right. And so you can process it later, but for right now. Yeah. So. so I'd yep. say it's an acquired skill, if you will, and a, yep. it, I would call it a survival skill. And, and I think you bring up a good point, which is if you're unable to do it, maybe subconsciously that is what drives people to someday get out sooner than others because it's just going to be so confrontational in your mind to not be able to do that or if it's so much effort to do it, I think that could lead to your dissatisfaction with the job and you may be more willing to go versus the people that can say, okay, I have a sick kid at home. My wife just told me on email, but I'm out here. I'm going to not think about it for two hours. I'm yeah, going to go do what I got to do. And then you get back and then you can pick it up again. Almost like hitting pause on a CD player that your, you know, your song was playing when you left, you pick it back up. I think it, I agree with you. I think it takes a little bit of natural ability, but I think you just develop it. And it's, I, I've never really thought of it as particularly something I'm proud of, I guess. It's just something you do. It is. So, all right, you want to take this next one, and we're about down to about 15 minutes here to yeah. go. Yeah, when an event occurs, such as a nose gear separating from the catapult shuttle, what happens to the shuttle at the end of the stroke? And then the follow-on is, with that much force, I would anticipate some damage. How long would it take to repair? Well, a lot of this I don't know the answer to, uh, so I'll wow you with what I do know, which is on episode 12, which just released a couple days ago, uh, Pappy Anduzzi talks about this towards the end of our discussion on the catapults. And... He did not specifically say how long it took or what happened to it. But I have to think that the water break that exists at the end of the catapult to stop the catapult shuttle, I guess, is under what's underneath. Or the shuttle's on top. It's the piston underneath. Um, it, it will be set with its own venturi and apertures and all the engineering lingo that you probably know better than I to say, okay, I expect when, this, when it gets here, the piston, that it will be going this fast and it will have this much momentum because it's carrying this much weight. And so I will open at this rate to slow it down. And so when it gets there with only the nose gear because everything else broke off and it's going super fast because it's expecting to have more weight, then 
you are going to have a problem with that equipment. And again, I don't know, but I, you were on the ship. Why don't I let you answer this one? Yeah, well, if you don't mind, so there's momentum, which is MV. So it's right, kind of a linear. Mass times velocity. Yeah, so it's a linear relationship between velocity and momentum. But I, I would offer up kinetic energy. So that's one okay. half MV squared. So now we're looking at velocity squared. So at the end of the stroke, if it hasn't been dragging a you know, plane along, when it gets to the end of the stroke, it's going to be a lot faster. We'll take that a lot faster, that difference or delta, and square it. That gives you an idea of the amount of energy that needs to be dissipated by the water break at the end. So I think the amount of energy basically overwhelmed the water break, and it led to structural damage within the, the, the piston itself, if you will. And I believe that was Catapult 1. Did you guys end up, it was, it was did you end up using it again, that deployment? Uh, we did much later. Wow. So weeks, months, something yeah, like that. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's you know, see. Did you know what's we a good one here is, is uh, sorry, and then the follow follow on is how common is a nose gear slash launch bar failure? So once again, what is the launch bar? Launch bar, we talked about on episode 11 and 12, or I think just 12, but it's the bar on the front of the nose that lo uh, lowers and goes into the shuttle and it pulls the whole airplane off. But I would argue, uh, I don't know your experience, I can only think of one episode and that's bashers. Similar question for arresting gear or hook failures. So not very often. Occasionally, a wire will break, a hook, I, I've never heard of a hook point breaking, I'm sure it has, I've just never heard of it, but you know, not very often I think is a short answer. Yeah, if you don't mind, so there's something called a ramp strike, right? Ah, so that's, well, that's not the hook point failing, that's the hook point. You're right, being subjected <laughs> to too much force, basically. So if a Blunt plane, force trauma. Yeah, exactly, blunt force trauma. So uh, on a different, I think it was on the Reagan cruise, we had a Super Hornet come in too low. So he's coming in too low, and fortunately his wheels made it and actually put skid marks on the round down but his hook point grabbed the edge of the metal where the, the after the ship ro rolls down. The very, very back down, of the ship. Yeah, we call it a round down. And grabbed it and snapped off the hook point. So he uh, was a, a no-brainer decision to divert him, obviously. Did you have a good divert handy? We did. We did. It worked out politically and geographically. It was very viable. So away right. he went. Okay. Yeah. All righty. How about from Ray? Ray asks, once the aircraft has cleared the shuttle at the edge of the deck, does the pilot have to raise the launch bar before retracting the gear, or is it handled automatically with raising the gear lever? Seems like the workload would be intense transitioning from hands-off during the launch to taking control of the aircraft at low speed and cleaning up for climb-out. Not just low speed, Ray, but low altitude. I guess that's why naval aviators are among the elite. <laughs> I had to leave that part in because I of never course. miss an opportunity. <laughs> no. um, so actually, this is a great question because we did not cover this in episode 12. You, I know, were listening to part of it on your drive down the other day. Yes. So if you can, remembering what you heard Pappy talk about, can you fill in the blanks on what uh, Ray is getting at here? Yeah, so in the sequence, right, so firstly, before uh, I give the long test pilot answer here, is the pilot is actually going to throw the switch in the cockpit to the up position. The shuttle is going to maintain tension on the launch bar to keep it in the down position. And then as soon as the launch bar clears the shuttle, which IE is weight off wheels, right, mm -hmm. then the launch bar will automatically raise. So that is one less thing we have to do because as a single seat pilots, we like to do as much as possible on deck prior to going airborne. At least I did. For sure. So um, when it comes to, let's see, so I think I answered it. So in the sequence of events, if you will, there's going to be a wipeout to check the hydraulics. We right? did you're talk about that. And you're going to run up the engines to right. check performance on there. Mm -hmm. And then from there, my kind of cadence was to uh, wipe it out, engines, oil, hides, launch bar up, turn, look, salute. And then, uh, and then when after I saluted, my hand does not return to the flight stick. It's going to actually go up to what we call the towel rack. Right. So it's on the, the canopy bow, if you will. There's a little handle there. 
And did you? And I forget. Did you guys talk about why Hornet pilots grab the towel rack as opposed to the launch bar? Or excuse me, the, the stick? stick? No, we didn't. Okay. So uh, I haven't read this anywhere, but from what I've heard, so this is maybe third or fourth hand information, is as you come off the flight deck at 60 feet, there's an updraft, okay? Because the carrier is essentially cutting through the air. The air has to go somewhere, so it's going to go to the sides of the boat. It's also some of it's going to come up. Right. So what will happen is it can actually increase the angle of attack, which I know you so artfully described with your hand, I believe. I have to use podcast. my fighter pilot hand, yes. Yeah, so it turns out you've got an aircraft that's going weight off wheels, so it's transitioning both for the pilot uh, mindset, but also for the aerodynamics of the jet, weight off wheels. You're at a relatively low speed, right? You're still above stall speed, probably 33% above stall speed at least, right? But you are dirty, so things are against you, and then you increase the alpha. So if you increase the alpha in the jet, you're decreasing your stall margin, and guys supposedly had a tendency to see, hey, there comes the water, I really need to rotate, and they would actually over-rotate. Right. So from my knowledge is the flight control system is going to look at the air data computer, mm -hmm. and once it goes weight off wheels, it doesn't want any, basically it doesn't want any human input because it's going to design itself to fly a flight path Silly that humans. provides about 10 to 12 degrees alpha. Right. So it will seek that position, and then that gives you time to bring your hand down. I never, well, I did at the beginning, but I just left mine on my knee. Cause oh, it was do right you? Oh, okay. It, but, well, there you go. But that's why it was there partly. Yeah. And so, yeah, then by the time you get your wits back about you, it's gone off the end, and it's rotated up. Just to go back, though, on the launch bar, on the Facebook page, every month we have a new background picture. And I want to say it was February we had a picture of a, a hobo jet back when oh. they had Charlie's yeah. it was coming off the waist catapult and the photographer was up on the bow kind of where they come off on that side and the jet was just coming off like the main gear were still on the deck but the nose gear was off and already the launch bar was up so it's a pretty stout spring Absolutely. that is trying to push that thing up but your shuttle is holding it down so when you in the cockpit put the switch up there's a little light that will tell you if you have a problem it'll go red but otherwise I think it just goes out right and if it shows red, you have a problem. We don't want to get into that. But the moment you get to the end and the shuttle stops, but you don't, that spring will fling it up and that thing will come up in a heartbeat. And it was, like I said, already up even before the main gear were off the deck oh, wow, in that picture. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to I, I think it's hydraulic fluid at 3,000 PSI that holds it down until you get in the shuttle, right? So, And then basically you throw that switch up and now the hydraulic pressure is removed. So just like you said, it's purely tension on the uh, shuttle. Cool. All right, that was Ray. Let's see, and and I guess that's why naval aviators are among the elite. Do we, do we need to talk about that? For yeah, we should we should <laughs> expound. So uh, Ray, uh, thank anyway. you. All right, well we have just a few minutes oh, left. I, actually, I got one for you if you don't mind. Go ahead. Yeah, please. So so Ray here talks about the uh, it's a very intense transition from hands off during the launch to taking control of the aircraft. So, cat shots day and night. How did you feel about the day shots versus the night shots? I think just about anything that had to do with night, I hated. <laughs> I totally agree, dude. So, Ray, if you could imagine the carrier flight deck is uh, outlined with lights. There's not a lot of lights on board because it's, A, it disturbs our night vision, right. right? But also it's not tactically very savvy, right, to have a giant beacon out there. Hey, look at us. Come right. shoot us, right? So the minimal lights that are on the flight deck and wands predominantly at night, like mm -hmm. you guys talked about with the yellow shirts, the green shirts, and all that, there are very few light sources at night. And then when you get pushed off the front and you feel that oomph as you go weight off wheels and you just a minor settle, it is. It can be so dark. You know what I'm saying? You could have an overcast layer, and the, and the moon is above you. I, Ray, I honestly <laughs> felt like I walked into a closet and shut the door. It was so disorienting. No, it's like someone shoved you into the closet. Well, that's and true. Shut better, the door. but yeah, because yeah. you lose your peripheral light to your point, yes. which gives you a sense of up and down, 
and you all of a sudden are in the dark. And like you said, if it's overcast or no moon or whatever, you could be upside down and not know it, especially since your ears just went through all this fluid shift that Cyclone talked to us about way back on an earlier episode. Yeah. So it, you definitely have to look at your heads up display for us Hornet pukes. You had to rely yeah, on that. Yeah. And just don't do anything because George is going to set the flight controls where you need it and, yep. and you're going to climb away. So you just put yeah. the gear up. You, you take a moment to compose yourself and off you go. All right. Uh, do you, ooh, from Julie Martin, do you miss the work you did at China Lake? Very quickly now. Hey, this Julie. This is like a lightning rain. I uh, do. Lightning yes. round, excuse me. Yes. Uh, people, awesome. Engineering, awesome. Flight conditions, awesome. Flying million-dollar-plus weapons for the first time ever. Got to chase a Tomahawk cruise missile at 200 feet and 550 Sweet. knots. Got to, uh, I stepped a little bit away from it as it impacted the, Good the ship, obviously. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a survival tactic. But uh, epically fantastic, yes. Living in Ridgecrest? Boom. You were saying awesome every time. Oh, oh. Uh, you know what? It was, uh, <laughs> you make the fantastic. most of it, don't you? That's how it is in the military. All right. Well, that will do it for the listener question segment of this show. If it sounds like Sunshine and I were having a good time, that's because we were. We enjoy our job. We enjoy sharing it with people. So if you missed the video, you can still find it on our Facebook page. And we've also uploaded it to our YouTube channel as well. So I recommend you go check it out. Part of the reason I wanted to use that segment is we do talk about some of the aircraft carrier operations that we uh, have been discussing in this series, both in episodes 11 and 12 and the lead in for today. So with that, let's jump into our interview with U.S. Navy Commander and former Landing Signal Officer Jack Curtis, call sign Farva. All right, today we are talking landing equipment and hopefully day landings on carriers. Here to help me do that is Commander Jack Curtis, United States Navy, call sign Farva. Farva, welcome to the Fighter, sorry, Pilot Podcast. Hey, it's great to be here, Jill. Thanks for having a, a not fighter pilot on the show today. Well, okay, what are you? Uh, I am a, I'm a growler pilot. Oh, uh, well, that's close. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll get into that. All right. So we are talking day landings and carrier equipment. But before we do have a little tradition here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we have an opening and closing question we ask everyone. So we'll start off with where are you from? What have you done? And where are you now? Well, I, uh, my dad was in the Navy. I grew up kind of all over Southern California, actually, for, uh, for a few years. And then we moved to uh, Northwest Florida, not far from Pensacola, actually. Played a lot of sports in high school, uh, kind of figured that uh, growing up around Pensacola and being able to uh, see all the airplanes flying around there made it look like a pretty cool job, and I thought I might like to try to do that. I uh, was fortunate enough to get selected for an ROTC scholarship and was able to use that at the University of Florida. Uh, miraculously made it through there in four years and was selected for uh, pilot training in the Navy. Joined the Navy, see the world, went back home in Pensacola, uh, started my flight training there, was fortunate enough to get selected for jets, went up to Meridian, Mississippi for a little while, trained up there. Uh, selected prowlers, which are now retired. Uh, moved uh, up to NAS Whidbey Island, which is about two hour, uh, yeah, about two hours north of Seattle. Trained uh, on prowlers. I did my first fleet deployment around 2005, and uh, that's where I kind of got into the uh, the LSO thing that we're going to talk about today. Okay. From there, I went. I was a, a RAG instructor, so that's the replacement air group or the uh, the training squadron for that particular fleet aircraft. Uh, I was able to go and uh, train new pilots and take them out to the ship and get them qualified. From there, I was really fortunate to get selected for what we, talk, uh, we call a CAG paddles job, and uh, I think we'll talk a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. That was a, a fantastic tour, probably the best tour I've had so far. Uh, and after that, uh, then I went uh, transitioned to the, uh, the new aircraft, uh, flew the Growler for my next tour. After that, up to Newport, Rhode Island. And then uh, spent two years uh, doing staff work in Colorado Springs. Fortunate enough to get selected for command, and uh, I'm on the on the training track now to go back and command a Growler Squadron. Outstanding. So before we 
talk about the process. Let's talk about a little bit of equipment. On previous episodes, we talked about the catapult equipment. Let's talk about the arresting gear equipment now. It resides back where the wires are. It's one deck below the flight deck. And how does that work? What happens when an aircraft touches down and grabs one of those cables? It's hydraulics. And I'm not an engineer, but I think I can explain it a little bit in the sense that uh, when you apply a whole lot of hydraulic pressure to something, it creates a lot of tension, a lot of resistance. And so when the aircraft, anywhere between you know, 33, 36, up to 54,000 pounds, comes aboard the aircraft carrier, there's a lot of force that needs to be stopped quickly. And so the arresting wires themselves, the part you see across the flight deck, that's called the cross-deck pennant uh, that the aircraft's hook engages, is actually connected on both sides to even longer wires that go down, like you said, below the flight deck and into engine rooms down there. And that's where the hydraulic pistons are uh, that are attached to large, they call them sheaves, but really what happens is when that cross-deck pennant that's engaged by the aircraft's tail hook starts to pay out, it's connected on both sides to more wires that go down, and as they are pulled out, the hydraulic pressure increases, and that's what allows the aircraft to stop. It's extremely violent, it's extremely loud, but it's also extremely effective, and it's been proven for years and years to be very effective uh, and, and largely very, very safe. Right. How thick are they, roughly? The way the wires are constructed is that uh, there's a line of hemp that is the, the foundation of this, and then they're, they're braided and wrapped in steel, and when it's all said and done, they're about an inch to maybe an inch and a quarter in diameter. Uh, and so when you think about the fact that a very heavy aircraft is engaging this and using it to stop, it doesn't really look that substantial, but it does the job. For sure. I don't know about you, but I've given a lot of tours on F-18s. People will look at the tail hook and they'll say, that's it. And then if they're near the arresting gear and they get a chance to see that pendant, they'll say the same thing. That's it. That brings, like you said, what, 55-ish thousand pounds. And oh, by the way, when we touch down, we're not going to idle and trying to reduce the pull on that wire, we're doing just the opposite, aren't we? We are. Every time that we touch down on the flight deck, we go to full power. And we do that so that if we miss the wire, we have the energy on the aircraft so that we can safely get airborne again and not dribble off the end into the water. We'd like to be able to use the airplanes again. Yeah, for sure. Now, do those wires ever break? Unfortunately, they do. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I distinctly remember uh, I was uh, holding overhead an aircraft carrier on the East Coast one, one day back in uh, maybe 2003, uh, getting ready to come down and, and do some landings for, for practice. And uh, I'm listening on the radio, and uh, there was an F-18 that came down and landed. And uh, as soon as he landed, everything looked normal. Uh, but as the arresting gear, especially the cross-deck pennant that mm -hmm. we referenced, as it paid out, it snapped right at the, uh, at the, at the apex of the wire, if, if you will. Wow. Um, so now there's nothing holding that aircraft that's at full power. There's nothing holding it back. And it dribbled off the end. Thankfully, the pilot ejected. Quick reflexes and very good recognition of what happened. He ejected, and he was safely picked up out of the water to tell a good story. But uh, So sometimes they do break. It's very, very, very rare. Right. Uh, and the reason why it's so rare is because we've, uh, we've put a life cycle on these wires. And we don't use them beyond about 100 arrested landings per wire. And so what that allows us to do is to, to keep a known amount of life in these wires so that we don't end up with nasty surprises. Sure. So someone up in the tower next to the air boss is probably keeping track, a little checkbox or something on how many landings on each one of these. And I've heard they'll actually move them, right? So we try to hit the number three wire, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But if the three wire starts getting high, can't they swap it with maybe the number one wire, which doesn't have as many, to try to make it an even count, or will they just let number three get to 100 and then switch it out? They, they can do that, and I think maybe later in the show or in your next one, we may, uh, we may preview this new technology. It's called PLM, uh, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an entirely different way of landing aircrafts on ships. And uh, 
it's so predictable and it's so precise that what they're finding is that it's wearing out spots on the flight deck and it's wearing out the target wire, which, like you said, is normally mm -hmm. the three-wire. It's wearing those out really quickly because it's putting the aircraft down in the same spot every time. And so you'll talk to some air bosses that are out there, and they're, they're saying just what you, you referenced, is they can, they can move the wires around a little bit to share the load and share the fatigue life. Okay. Now, when, in that episode where the wire broke, or in, in general, what happens to the wire that's broke? I mean, it's got all that tension on it. Now it's free. What happens to it? Well, it's, that's a great question. And uh, if you, if you, for the listener, if you want to visualize, uh, take a, a rubber band, cut it in half, and you've got two people that are holding each end of it, and you just keep walking further and further and further apart from each other. And then one person lets go of that, their end. Obviously, that rubber band's going to come flying back with a lot of force. Now, let's say it's not a rubber band. Now it's that steel wire. It's an inch or so in diameter. And it comes flying back towards where it came out of the deck. And it can be extremely dangerous. Uh, it can be very lethal. Mm -hmm. um, in that case, I think it damaged several aircraft. It, it really seriously damaged a couple of our sailors that were working on the flight deck. And what you'll see sometimes is a lot of lower extremity injuries because you've got this wire that's just whipping across the flight deck. Yeah. And I think you can find a video online of this, and you'll see uh, what happens to one very quick reacting and very fortunate sailor is he recognizes what's going on uh, and then immediately starts jumping. And it almost looks like he's skipping rope. But what he's doing is he's jumping over this retracting wire. Not all the sailors on the flight deck were, were fortunate that day. Thankfully, I don't think anybody died that day, but I know there were some pretty serious injuries. Well, we definitely talked about how dangerous the flight deck is on the previous episodes, and I think the listeners gotten a good sense of that already if they didn't have it before. So... All right, so these cables are about as thick as our forearms, I mean, for those of us who only exercise on occasion and aren't particularly buff. And again, not particularly huge, but they are good enough with those pistons below deck to bring an aircraft flying in at what? What's a typical airspeed an F-18 or EA-18 is coming aboard at? Well, just generally speaking, about 145 miles per hour. And so I think in the past you've talked what that looks like in mm -hmm. miles per hour or right, knots. knots. And there's another important aspect to talk about here, and that's there's a tremendous amount of wind that's being blown over the flight deck. And what that does is that, that decreases the closure rate. So if you think about a headwind in an airplane, the airplane's not going to travel over the ground as quickly. Right. And so what the aircraft carrier will do is it will either seek the natural wind that's blowing across the ocean, or if there isn't any, the ship will make its own wind by using its uh, propulsion plant to drive forward and create wind across the flight deck. And what that does is that decreases the closure rate of the aircraft as it approaches the landing area. And that does two things. It, it decreases the fatigue and the, the load on the arresting wires, and it also decreases the load and the fatigue on the aircraft. So if we're coming aboard at 140 miles an hour, let's say, and there's a 30-mile-an-hour wind, then the equivalent is 110, and that can decrease some of that uh, wear and tear. Like you said, though, if the ship has to make its own wind, then it's not always right down that angle we talked about on the previous episode, which is about, what, 10 to 11 degrees off of the center line that the ship is driving. So then we can end up with some crosswind. We can. And if, if you look at a standard Nimitz-class carrier from overhead, you'll notice that the direction that the aircraft carrier is pointed and the direction it's traveling is not the same direction the aircraft are landing in the same direction that the, the runway mm -hmm. is lined up. There's about a 10 degree difference like you referenced. What can happen a lot of times though when either the ship is making its own wind like you mentioned or what will happen a lot with natural wind over the ocean because that tends to be a bit less predictable. It can be gusty and it's not necessarily always from the same direction as you can get some of those crosswinds like you mentioned. And we have very strict limits with how much crosswind we can accept because it creates a lot of different effects for the aircraft, not least of which is it makes landing on the center line very difficult. Mm -hmm. And that's very important because if you've ever seen a video or, or done it yourself, you know that 
there's not a lot of room from your wingtips to where the other aircraft are parked. And if you start looking at bigger aircraft like the C-2 Greyhound or the E-2 Hawkeye, they have very large wingspans. And being on center line is very important to those aircraft. You're right, even more so than the rest. But it's important for all of them because if you land off center, you can be pulled more one way or the other because of the arresting gear engines. You can. And what's interesting about the arresting gear, especially uh, some of the technological updates they've made recently, is they call it auto-correcting, I think, or auto-centering. So if you engage that wire a little bit off of center line or you engage it with a little bit of a drift in one direction or the other, it will pay out at such a rate between the left and the right side that it will either slow down your drift or it will try to recenter you toward. Wow. And when it works, it's great. And when it doesn't, it can be a bit scary. Yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> you know, we didn't drive the point home on the arresting gear stuff, but just to close the door on that. So these are rooms below the flight deck, right underneath the wires. And then, of course, they're manned by petty officers. So these are guys wearing green shirts that we talked about before. And so someone will tell them what's coming down next, or maybe it's even dialed in from somewhere else. But the, the resistance or that hydraulic pressure you talked about, it'll change from landing to landing. And sometimes these landings are only, what, a minute apart or something? They are. It's a great question. And it is really important that, each, that the resistance for each aircraft is, is set differently because what we try to do is we try to set a standard max weight for each aircraft. So if it's a, a Hornet, uh, we'll typically set 36,000 pounds as the resistance because we know that aircraft can't come aboard anything more than that. So mm -hmm. 36,000 pounds would have it covered. But if he's super light and dropped all his bombs and he's coming in at 31, let's say, is that a problem? Not necessarily a problem. It can be depending on different wind situations or if we do some different things with glide slope because we can change the glide slope a bit. But in most situations, no. So yeah. for a Super Hornet, the standardized maximum weight or at least a standardized um, resistance setting that we're going to set is 44,000 pounds because we know that will cover anything they come back with, which is anything they come back with that's covered by their own aircraft manual. Right. So if they're breaking their own aircraft manual, then there's going to be some issues with the single weight sure. setting that we use. In other words, it couldn't take off with full fuel and full bombs and turn right around and land because it's going to be not only too heavy for its own landing gear, but probably too heavy for the arresting gear as well. That's, that's absolutely because right. these are not smooth landings. These are controlled crashes. Some they they really are. And, <laughs> and I think to answer your question, your previous question a little bit better, the way that this team works, and it really is a team, mm -hmm. uh, from everybody in the tower to the youngest sailors working on the flight deck to the even – even younger, if you can believe it, sailors that are working down in the engine rooms for these arresting gear. It's a big team effort. And what happens on the LSO platform, which is all the way aft on the port side of the ship, typically during the daytime, uh, one of the sailors will have binoculars. Uh, real high tech, right? Stay out there <laughs> with binoculars and they'll, they'll spot the aircraft either uh, while it's still in the pattern or at various points if they're coming in on, in, on straight ends. And they'll identify the aircraft with some flash patterns or just visually because you can tell the difference between an E-2 and a Hornet. Right. Uh, and they will call downstairs on a sound-powered phone, and they'll say, next aircraft is a Rhino. And that's what we call the Super Hornet around right. the ship. They'll say, next aircraft is a Rhino. So now those sailors down in the engine room know that they need to dial up the standardized resistance setting for a Rhino. Fast forward a little bit, the way we do this at night, as each aircraft has a very distinctive flash pattern for its, for its uh, anti-collision lights, its strobes. And so what they'll do is they'll recognize that strobe pattern being different from a Hornet, from a Growler, from an E-2. And they'll do the same thing, though. They'll call down and they'll say, next aircraft down is an E-2. And then they'll set the appropriate resistance setting for that aircraft. Well, and at night or in case three, we also have, I mean, the pilots are talking more than they do in the daytime. And so we also know the side number. And, of course, each side number is affiliated with a squadron. So we know it that way, too. But that's, that's a good point. It's a good backup. 
All right, so let's get into the fun stuff here. I mean, and we'll talk about, we've got some other equipment we need to talk about, like the lens and, you know, barricades and Movos and all that. But let's, let's just get into a scenario, let's say, where it's cyclic operations. So we've got, let's say, 15 aircraft airborne. And generally, correct me if I'm wrong, but we'll have a little bit of everything up. So if there are still some Hornets in this particular air wing, then there'll be a couple of those, a couple of rhinos, a couple of growlers, probably one E2 generally, and a bunch of helos, which I won't say don't matter, but I almost did. And I guess I just did now. But in other words, for the point of our discussion, they don't. Uh, and maybe a cod or that C2 you were talking about coming from the beach. So if it's daytime, good weather, we can do this, as we've discussed before on the show, almost without making any communications at all. So talk us through what we would call the case one pattern, beginning with, let's say it's a nine o'clock recovery. So if you and I are out there flying together and it's 8.45, we're probably done with our mission. And let's say you're leading. What's going on? What do we do to prepare ourselves to be ready to land at nine? And again, we did talk on previous at nine o'clock. Of course, they have to do the launch first, but then sometime after that, depending on how many and, uh, you know, by 9.15, we'll call it you know, we're ready to come down. So what's happening, though, a few minutes before 9? So a few minutes before 9, we'll have finished whatever training we were doing, like you referenced, uh, we'll, whatever kind of uh, checklists that we need to accomplish to make sure that any switches or, or screens or displays we had up for our training are now back to where they need to be. And then we'll start pointing ourselves back toward the ship. There's a couple of frequencies and radio calls that we'll make as we work our way back there. But generally speaking, we're working our way back towards the ship. And, you know, it depends on the weather conditions. Sometimes you can see the ship from 20 miles away. Sometimes it's only a few miles before you see it. But during the daytime, for our scenario, it's nice. And each squadron in the air wing has a pre-assigned low holding altitude overhead the ship. In this case, we'll say that we're going to be holding at 3,000 feet. And so the way the holding stack works is that you've got aircraft that are holding overhead at 2,000 feet, 3,000 feet, 4,000 feet. And since we do have an E2 in this recovery, there's going to be somebody at 5,000 feet as well. And they're just holding in a circle overhead the ship. And uh, the way it works is everybody is flying overhead the ship at their assigned altitude. And the guys at 2,000 feet are really the ones who are responsible for kicking off this party. And the way they're going to do that is they're going to be flying overhead the ship, looking down and monitoring the status of the launch that you referenced. Because during cyclic ops at 9 o'clock, there's a launch that's immediately followed by our recovery. So they're going to be watching and they probably have notes on their on their kneeboard from the airplane they looked at, which is the, the big flight schedule for the for the entire air wing. So they have an idea of how many jets are going to be launched at 9 o'clock, and they kind of keep track of that. So let's say they knew there were going to be 10 jets launched at, at 9 o'clock, and they see that there's two to go. They're probably going to, the, the handler and the air boss and the mini boss, maybe trying to get those last two jets launched off the bow so they can start doing what we call wrap the waist. Because remember, we have catapults that are also part of the runway that we're going to land on. Uh, so what they have to do is they have to get those wrapped, and that's the phrase they use. And really what that means is they get all the extra equipment stowed, they get the, the shuttles that are part of the catapults, they get those put in the right position, and they get that runway turned in from a launching runway to a landing runway. And so now that we're those guys at 2,000 feet are watching all this, and they want to be timing it, so they come down out of 2,000 feet, they descend, and they come up from behind the ship at 800 feet, and they're in the break about 350 knots. Sometimes faster. Sometimes faster and <laughs> breaking sometimes earlier. Uh, and we can get to that in a little bit when we talk about grades, if you'd like. Sure, yeah. But you, you come in 800 feet, about 350 knots, and you roll the aircraft into a pretty good turn. You pull some Gs, and you, what you're doing at this point is you're trying to use that G and that turn and bring the throttles back to idle to decelerate your aircraft, get it down to an approach speed, get your landing gear down, your flaps down, get your hook down, 
And now you're in the pattern. And we can talk a little bit about that later. Yeah. Okay. So let me just expand on a couple of things you talked about. So first you said low holding. So if you and I get done and let's say we only have so much fuel because we need to come back to the ship to land with a, enough fuel. Let's say we use up all our fuel early, but it's still 830. Well, we can't just come home and say, hey, we're here. Let us board. We've got to hang out. So we also have what's called high holding. And that'll be what? Up in the 20s, typically. And that's just a, a safe place, if you will, with the, when you're within 10 miles of the ship that we can hang out and relax and, and conserve fuel because we burn less fuel up at high altitudes than we do down low. But then also the cod, the C2, if he's coming from the beach with some distinguished visitors, correct me if I'm wrong, they'll sometimes be at like 1,200 feet and they'll be the first to come down because they don't want those DVs getting any more sick than they probably already are. Yeah, no kidding. And then if we have tankers, as we talked about on episode four, I believe it was, they'll be holding out above so that if anyone has any trouble, about six or 7,000, that they can uh, hawk whoever is having trouble. But generally, once we're proficient, that's not an issue in the daytime. And then just real quick, a, a visual I tried on a different interview I did once on a different podcast. So imagine the ship is going north, and we typically think of that as going up. And let's imagine the face of a clock, and we'll put it at the 3 o'clock position. And so all the aircraft are holding overhead the ship, and they're going counterclockwise, and they fly directly over the ship at 3, and then they'll turn and fly over 12, heading to, the let's say, the west, and then over at 9, they're heading south, and then down at 6, they're heading back to the east, and probably a bunch of people's eyes just crossed. But I don't know, does that make sense there, Farva? I mean, that's that's kind of the circle that we fly over this thing, right? It does, and and but it's 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 a three-dimensional problem though so as you just described you, know, you described the circle or the 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 track that we're we're flying over the ground but remember we have people that are holding it 2000 3004 right. and all the way up like you just described so as i was talking earlier when our when our heroes at 2000 feet decided to go down and break the deck as we call it they're mm-hmm. the ones who are the first ones in and they want to be timing that so that as soon as the the deck crew gets that landing area ready there's somebody about to land and that's how you know you've done it really well but as soon as those guys at 2,000 feet start going down, the people that are at 3,000 feet, now they collapse, that's what we call it. We collapse the stack down. So if you were at three, now you're at two. And it goes, you know, if you're at four, now you're down to three and so on. And so what you're trying to do is you're trying to time it so that when the people at the altitude below you push down to go in for the break, you can now descend down to the next altitude. And if you have yourselves oriented correctly around the clock face, like you described, it all should work really, really well. All right, well, we will have to leave it there. Unfortunately, we are out of time for this episode, but not to despair. Jack Curtis will be back on episode 14 to continue and conclude this discussion on day carrier landings and carrier equipment. And then after that, we will have a discussion on night carrier landings. I want to remind you that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. So have a great week to 10 days. We'll see you back here for the conclusion of Day Carrier Landings next time. See ya. Now this is the awkward part because then I got to find the button. Oh, end live video. You want to do it? It's fun. End click, live video? Click right there. I can? Yeah, oh, but you have to like wave and time. say goodbye too. Okay, but pilots you love can't buttons. do Wait. Yeah. No, okay. Go ahead. Right there. Oh, one more. You got to Oh, there's commit. two. It's a two button sequence. <laughs> Good time. <laughs> stupid work.